This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Today, I'm sharing a special bonus episode and part two of our parenting deep dive. In part one, New York Times journalist Jessica Gross gave us some historic context for the impossible situation parents find themselves in today and shared the ways that work, politics, and our culture can do better. We also heard from clinical psychologist and parenting guru, Dr. Becky Kennedy. And today in part two, I'm sharing our entire sweeping conversation. I was really into Dr. Becky, you guys. We talked about how she became the millennial parenting whisperer, what's behind her parenting philosophy, how to navigate social media and screen time, and so much more. So settle in, friends, and enjoy Dr. Becky with great advice for parents and really anyone out there. Dr. Becky Kennedy, okay, you've become sort of this parenting phenom. And before we talk about your advice and your approach toward parenting, I want to talk to you about you. How did you, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this, as my mom <laughs> used to say, how did you get into this whole line of work? Um, That's a great question. I, I've always just found people to be so fascinating. And, and honestly, probably like you have been interested in people's stories. Um, and I've always just kind of loved living in this space between what I know is people like doing their best. And I really have always believed people are kind of inherently good. And then there's this whole range of behaviors we all engage in that are like really not so good. And so I've always like imagined the space between people's like identity and their behavior. And then I learned as I got older, oh, kind of the space in between, a lot of it can be understood by psychology and sociology. And actually people make a living of getting to know people and understanding that space and helping people kind of close that space. And acting more in line with their values. And so then I, you know, studied psychology at Duke and started a private practice after getting my PhD in clinical and adult psychology. And then as I became a parent myself, I realized in addition to kind of the deep psychotherapy I liked doing, I really liked working with parents who weren't necessarily seeking therapy. They were actually seeking kind of guidance for how to help the struggles they saw with their kids. So a lot of these parents would come to me and say, yeah, I'm not even looking for therapy for my kid. I just know that I need to kind of brush up on some skills because I don't like the way I'm interacting with my kid, but I don't I don't know what to do differently. Or I know my kid is kind of in the range of normal. They're four. They're having tantrums. They're 10. They're lying to me. I, I don't know if what they need is therapy, but I need help. <laughs> just like helping this whole system. And then that led me to, you know, want to do a lot more, you know, kind of direct parenting work. And I feel like everything really came together because parenting 
is not just this like kind of set of strategies or skills we can memorize because our own past and the way we were parented and kind of our old stuff just all comes alive. And so that combination of thinking deeply about people, understanding why we are the way we are, and then giving people very practical, action-oriented kind of help, um, I was able to do all of that with parents and then just wanted to do more and more of it. Well, clearly you're filling a huge void, I think, in the marketplace. Although, if you go to the parenting section at any Barnes & Noble, it is replete with you know, all kinds of parenting books. So what do you think it it is about your approach, Becky? Should I call you Dr. Becky? Uh, Becky is good. <laughs> okay. I'll allow uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that really differentiates you from so many other people in the, in this arena. So I've reflected on this question for a little bit because I've wondered it myself. I've been to the parenting section too. I'm like, there's like a lot of action here, you know? (laughs) Um, So I think there's a couple things. From a parenting specific standpoint, I feel like we've been fed these two models, neither of which actually feel right to people, where there's this model of, okay, change behavior and kids do this bad behavior and we need less of the bad and more of the good. And so we have timeouts and we have punishments and we have sticker charts and praise and ignoring. And while that all makes sense logically, I I feel like all of us deep in our souls are like, this just, this can't be it. Like, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel right. I don't know about you, but if my husband responded to my not so great behavior by like giving me a timeout or a sticker or something, I would not feel great. And so nobody likes doing those strategies. In fact, you talk about how it's shaping behavior, not human beings. Yeah, I feel like there's this like very, very narrow way of looking at kids as if we can help young, impressionable children become fully functioning, sturdy adults by just looking at what's happening on the surface. It's almost like a Pavlovian uh, attitude about parenting, isn't it? It is. It's like, right, well, my kid keeps hitting their younger sibling, and if I just scare them enough by threatening abandonment to their room or by having a scary voice or kind of bribe them enough with stickers, then I will fix my child. But we all know, well, what happened to the jealousy that was driving that? Or what happened to the anger? Well, guess what? Your kid's going to feel jealous and angry for the rest of their lives, probably toward their sibling, but also just in general. So if we're not building skills for those feelings, well, what's going to happen when your kid's 20 and feels jealous of their you know, friend or what's going to happen when they're 40 and are angry at their boss, like nothing good because they've never developed skills. So that approach is like purely logical behavior shaping. And to me, beyond it not feeling good, to me, there's also just an inefficiency. Like, wait, you're missing out on all the years you could be developing skills that kids actually need for the rest of their lives. So I think there's a lot of books and a lot of parenting approaches that fall into that category. And then there's a lot of books and kind of approaches that fall into the category of weight, like feelings matter. And like, we need to see feelings and allow for feelings. But I think sometimes on that side of things, people feel limited because parents are thinking, okay, okay, but what do I do in the moment? Like, but what do I actually say? And okay, so you allow the feelings, but what about when, yeah, it results in lying or hitting? Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to just sit back and be like, my kid is feeling angry. How amazing. Like, that's definitely not right either. And so I think our approach equally prioritizes Yeah, seeing feelings as real and strong and important, but also something I call embodying authority and really sturdy leadership and firm boundaries. And so it's kind of a hybrid of these two approaches. Exactly. So I think that feels good. And then and then 
maybe even more than that, I really think it's like the first approach that is as much about self-development as it's about child development. And that's not a way of saying it's parents' fault at all. I don't think any of this stuff is parents' fault. I actually think it's a way of saying we have a huge opportunity here. Like this is a parenting approach where you can grow even outside your role as a parent and you can feel more healed and you can feel more centered and more sturdy across the board while at the same time you're building resilience in your kids. And I think there's just a feel-good nature. I also think there's an efficiency. Parents are like, oh, I can knock that both out at once. Like, that that sounds good. Well, that's interesting, too, because who's to say that a first-time parent or even a second, third-time parent has all the answers? It is really a kind of learn-as-you-go process. There isn't really a handbook for handling this. No. I mean, and this is the thing that gets me super fired up. Um, and I think it's such a larger sociological problem that I feel like most drawn to almost more than any, you know, one parenting problem, this bigger problem, which is parenting is the hardest and most important job in the world. And it's a job we have, you know, 24-7 for a lot of years. Like your kids are older, you're still a parent, like you still parent. And most jobs in this country that we value, that we think are important, we really prioritize the people in those jobs getting training and resources. And not only that, like... If I think about a surgeon I'd ever go to, because I would think surgery is like another really important, you know, really hard job, I would never see a surgeon who like got their tips on Instagram. Like I'd be like, oh, okay, like did you get training? And the the surgeon who got the most training, the surgeon who had ongoing support, I think all of us would look at that surgeon positively. Not like what's wrong with you? We'd be like, that's amazing. You know, when can I get an appointment? And with parenting, it's the opposite. Where we just take this baby home from the hospital, we're given nothing. There's this bullshit about maternal instinct, right? So it's kind of saying if you are struggling, it's your fault, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to if I am struggling, maybe I wasn't set up to thrive and maybe there are resources and support I can then go invest in, not just for my kids, but again, just so I can feel more confident. So I think you're right. And I think that's a huge shift we need. We were talking earlier when we were walking into the studio about generational trauma. And I'm so fascinated by this, and it's something that I've thought a lot about in the last year or so. And it's surprising to me that this is now just getting so much attention. And it's not, it's it's trauma broadly defined. In other words, how you were parented and what you experienced as a child comes out when you're a parent. And yet, People don't understand that. People don't look at that and either correct it or reinforce the things that were positive in their own childhoods. Talk to me about how parenting styles reflect your own childhood experience and why this is just now coming to light. I'm sure as a psychologist, it's something that you have been steeped in, but the general public, I don't think, has. Yeah, and I think it it is still under-talked about, maybe, right, it's starting to definitely be talked about more. But yeah, absolutely. Something I say often is without intervention and guidance, we parent the way we were parented. And very few people I know are like, great, like I want to do things exactly the same way, right? And so why is this, right? Well, we learn about what close relationships are through our earliest attachments, right? We learn what's allowed, what feelings are allowed, what feelings are safe, what brings me closeness with others. Literally, what brings my parents close, what gets me loving looks and 
kind of validation. Even when you're an infant, that modeling is so critically important. Just looking at a child, smiling at that child, reinforcing that that child is loved unconditionally. So many kids don't have that. They don't. And there's this other narrative, right? Like, oh, they won't remember that anyway, right? That's like something people say. And yeah, I hope more and pe- more people understand a much broader definition of memory, which is, you know, the most important memories in my mind aren't the ones ever that we recall with our words. They're the ones that were just stored in our body and live out in our behavioral patterns, right? That's another form of memory, right? So I remember always that there was a dad I used to see in private practice who said, I don't remember how my parents responded to my tantrums and hard moments. How would I remember that? But this is a dad who came to me because he's like, whenever my kids are having a hard time and are upset, which I now know is actually totally developmentally normal. I know what I want to say and do, but I, I get scary. Like I yell and I send them away. And he'd say, I don't remember how my parents responded. And, and I used to almost like hold this in lightness. Like, what do you mean you don't remember? Your memory just played out like right there. You know, like I can tell you what happened, right? Not because I can see into the past, you know, that far, but because our tolerance for tough moments with our kids comes from our parents' tolerance for those tough moments with us. So parents who say, yeah, like it's really hard for me to stay calm during my kid's tantrum or when my kid asks for something over and over, it's really, really hard for me to stay sturdy. I get really triggered or reactive. On some level, we're reliving this bodily memory. We're probably in our childhoods, you know, when we wanted something that was inconvenient for our parents, which is most of the time with children, right? Because you want things and you can't have them. And so when you want something and you can't have it and you haven't yet developed regulation skills, you have a tantrum. It's not a sign of being a bad, spoiled kid. It's a sign of how hard it is to want and be denied, which is hard for us too. And if that was responded to over and over, it would have been responded to with some version of, you know, oh, you're crying, I'll give you something to cry about, or go to your room, or you're spoiled, or no TV for a week, or, you know, physical punishment of some type. Then our bodies learn, back to that word trauma, wow, I'm not allowed to want things for myself. It doesn't learn I'm not supposed to ask for this game at the toy store. Just learn something bigger. Like when I want something and other people say no, that is really dangerous. So I should just put that away. I should stop wanting things. I should suppress my desires. Yes, exactly. But it, it can also be, I imagine, the the inability to really even deal with these things on a deeper level. It doesn't have to be uh, anger or uh, punishment. It could just be inadequacy, right, in terms of knowing how to navigate these feelings. Yes, right? I think the feelings that our parents can't tolerate in us either. Yes, there's a form they punish you or they just like, I can't talk about that. You know, you come home really sad and, you know, again, not one time, but over and over. And maybe you didn't get punished. It wasn't like that, but more, no one, no one asked you, like no one followed up. You were just kind of alone in your room. Our body can't tolerate overwhelming feelings in aloneness. And often we, you know, kind of point the finger at the feelings, like the feelings are the problem. The feelings were never the problem. The aloneness is the problem. I actually think that's what trauma is. It's tough experiences encoded with aloneness, right? And so when we're alone in overwhelming feelings, our body can't tolerate it. We're this relational species. So going back to that intergenerational trauma and how this plays out, it might not be punishment or getting hit or even getting sent to your room, but people say this all the time, like, my family just didn't talk about feelings. Like, forget being angry. Just like feelings, like sadness, disappointment. It was just that was never on the table. 
then there's a whole range of feelings, a really wide range that you had to learn to put away. So then you see feelings in your kids and you're thinking, I want to be there when my kid got cut from the soccer team. But like, you're like, what? Like your body's like really struggling to go to their room. You're like, I feel awkward. And then instead of kind of pushing through that in some ways saying, okay, I feel awkward because I'm like the first one in my generation to go talk about sadness with someone. Of course that feels awkward. That's carving a new circuit. If we don't push forward, then we kind of repeat that same pattern. Oh, my kid seems fine. Forget it. My kid then learns, I guess we're not supposed to talk about sadness and it, it continues. When we come back, the importance of repair and why we all need to look at ourselves first. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You filled a huge need during the pandemic. I know before... America shut down. You didn't have an Instagram account. Now you have 1.5 million followers, a book, a little bit of a mini empire going. So why do you think, Becky, you hit such a chord? And by the way, I've never been so grateful to have grown children than in the last few years because hats off to all the mothers and fathers, parents everywhere who had to juggle and deal with so much. And I love that shout out to everyone listening who had young kids, who had teenagers, who had their first baby, who were single parents, who were going through a divorce, who were who were married and still like no matter what, it was hard. It was so hard. And actually, the other thing we were talking about before this was how important it is to kids to to just name what's true, to talk about the hard stuff. We often think we're protecting them by not. But I think we're actually increasing a lot of their anxiety because, again, then they feel alone. Right, so in and confused. Of, and confused. Nobody likes feeling alone and confused. Those two things together are awful, right? So I think during the pandemic, I think something that really maybe, like, helped me hit a stride with people is I do. I think I've always been someone who has never shied away from, like, naming the hard. Like, even say, this is hard. We all yell at our kids. This pandemic sucks. This is so difficult. You are doing an impossible thing. You are a warrior. You did not mess up your kid forever when you yelled. Here are some words you can use. And I think during that time of so much uncertainty, yeah, when people knew like, okay, I can go somewhere and there'll be someone who's 
naming something that feels right on to what's actually happening in my house, who's not telling me necessarily how to make it all better, but who's just helping me tolerate how hard this is. Yeah, I think we all needed that. And I mm -hmm. think that you were hearing the desperate cries of mothers everywhere. What were they saying to you? What were they struggling with? I guess just about everything, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest thing they were struggling with is like, is is this, tell me this is as hard as it feels, you know, like, and it's one of my core mantras for parenting is just this feels hard because it is hard, not because I'm doing something wrong. And I always think that when something's really hard, if we can just validate for ourselves, wait, I'm not a horrible parent. Like this just actually is really hard to be home with two kids in a pandemic. Or even at this stage, this is really hard to manage through a tantrum in a grocery store. We don't then layer on the self-blame which goes into, I'm a horrible parent, I messed up this forever. If people saw me, they wouldn't believe that I'm this type of parent. When we add that layer, I think hard becomes impossible. And when we remove that layer, which is the impossible, it's still hard, but hard is, is far superior to impossible. <laughs> and you talk about the need for repair. Yes. Um, which you say is something really important for people to understand. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I really think you know, for any parent or even non-parent listening to this, I think the single most important strategy to get good at in our relationships is repair. And, you know, I, I'm sure there's some actual definition for what repair is. To me, I just think it's connecting after a moment of disconnection. And we all know moments with our kids, with a partner, with a colleague, where you're like, yeah, we were disconnected. It was not a feel-good moment. Repair is the act of going back and forming a connection again after. And if you think about what it means to get really good at repair, well, there has to be a rupture to repair. And I, and I think this is actually helpful to parents to think, okay, so the next time I yell at my kid, I'm going to try to remember this conversation I heard between Becky and Katie being like, okay, I got to get good at repair. Well, to get good at repair, I have to rupture. So, okay, check. I did step one. I yelled at my kids. Like, I'm not, <laughs> not a horrible parent. I had to do that to do the next step. And then the next step is reconnecting first with ourselves and reminding ourselves, I didn't mess up my kid forever. Like, I can, I always think of repair. I can rewrite the ending of that chapter. I can go back. I can reopen that file. And when I do, I essentially say, hey, that thing that didn't feel good, you were right to feel that way. And that probably felt scary or probably didn't feel good when I didn't understand your side of things. And I'm sorry I yelled. I always like to say to my kids, it's never your fault when I yell because kids, when we don't explain things to them, they self-blame to gain control and we don't, we don't want that for their future. And then some version of um, I'm working on managing my feelings just like you are, and I, I'm really working on doing better in the future. And when we do that, we actually change the way the not-so-great memory lives in a kid's body because surrounding the moment that felt scary or when they felt alone or misunderstood, now because I've rewritten that ending of the chapter, I kind of surround that moment with the elements that were missing in the first place, compassion, connection, understanding, listening, and I just, like, I want every parent to know because we've all had those moments and we'll have them again and I have them where I'm like in my bathroom and I'm like, oh my God, I yelled at my kid or I can't believe I said these words. I promised myself I would never say. And then we spiral as if that defines who we are. And when we can take a deep breath and say, whoa, 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 repair is where it's at. Repair is where it's at. Repair is where it's at and go back to our kid. I mean, it feels so much better for them. I think we almost underestimate. It feels so much better for us too. And then we move forward in such a different way. Your book is called Good Inside, A Guide to Becoming the Parent You Want to Be. So can you explain in a nutshell 
I think a lot of people who follow you and who listen to your advice understand this. But for the people who don't, Becky, what is your overall philosophy on raising children that 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 kids are basically inherently good? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe, you know, same with adults. I really do believe we all have this inherent goodness. And as our kids are developing, being able to see them as good inside is in no way permission for their, quote, bad behavior, right? Seeing kids as good inside helps us separate. And I always do this on my two hands to make it concrete, like their good identity from their not so good behavior, right? And I always think our interventions with our kids fall into two buckets. Either we're looking at our kid as a good kid having a hard time or a bad kid doing bad things. Punishments, consequences, timeouts are all from the bad kid doing bad things bucket. And when we see kids as good inside, then we have a gap between their good behavior, their good identity and their bad behavior. And then we can actually intervene to help them build skills versus send them away and add shame. So I think this is an approach that sees kids as inherently good inside, that allows us to build skills, and that allows us to actually raise kids in a way where we're developing all the skills they need for adulthood. Can you expand on the resilience versus happiness idea? Because when I was raising my kids, there was a lot of focus on grit, mm-hmm. right? And how to, how to develop grit and effort should be praised rather than the, the results. Yes. So tell me resilience versus happiness. Is that sort of the same thing about the grit versus results or not really? Yeah, I think it's like, de- they're definitely like close cousins, you know? So yes, grit, resilience, confidence, they all have slightly different conceptualizations, but I think they're all, you know, we'd all be like, I'll take any one of those. That's good. You know, give me, give me any one. We're fine. Um, so yeah, the resilience over happiness, I think is, is a really, really important concept to think about when we're raising kids, because there's this line I hear a lot, like, don't you just want your kids to be happy or don't you want your kids to be happy? And I'm always like, no. And then parents often, we go to the opposite. They're like, oh, Dr. Becky wants her kids to be unhappy. Like, no, I don't want them to be unhappy either. But when we focus on happiness in childhood, we do something really tricky in terms of kids wiring and set up for adulthood, where every time kids experience distress and what might distress be in childhood, frustration, like I can't finish this puzzle or feeling left out. I wasn't invited to that slumber party, feeling disappointed. Um, I didn't get that thing I wanted. I didn't get the present that I wanted to for the holidays. Exactly. So they experience various forms of distress in childhood. And then if their wiring is whenever I feel kind of the light go on for distress, I then wire next to it, the light going off to return to happy. Meaning, right? Oh, you weren't invited to that party. I'm throwing you another one. Or, oh, I'll finish that puzzle for you. Or or I... I'll give you that gift. I'll give you that gift. Not because as a parent, I've changed my mind, but because I actually am just kind of scared of you having a tantrum. Right. right? Then- What's also that instant gratification. A hundred percent, which relates exactly to, we think about phones and we think about video games and we think about the obsession with kind of scrolling, which is a lot of like instant, low effort, high gratification moments. This also relates to these moments we're talking about. How do we deal with kids in non-screen time situations when they're- frustrated and right. disappointed. It's also must be a dopamine inducing uh, reaction that sets them up for quick fixes. But that's exactly right. So I think about this family I saw in the city and they were a 
very wealthy family. They were, and they came to me when their kid was 16, just the parents. They said, okay, here's the situation. We flew to Hawaii on this vacation. And they're like, and we didn't fly first class. We didn't even think about it. My 16-year-old had a full-blown tantrum. Oh, brother. In the airport, right? Which 16? brings up like all these like entitled and right. But if you think about it, and I took, you know, an inventory of this kid's childhood and very well-intentioned parents. This was a kid whose life was all about having a quick fix and being happy immediately. So when the body then starts to feel frustration or disappointment, you're allowed to feel disappointed if you're used to flying first class. Sure, I think no one blames that kid for feeling disappointed. It's just like, whoa. In my mind, I see it as like, that kid had no skills to manage. It's the same as a two-year-old having a temper tantrum when you say that you won't buy them Cocoa Puffs in the grocery store, right? It's the same thing. It just is more embarrassing to a parent, right? But this kid's body was wired with feel upset. Where's the happy? Where's the immediate fix? There's almost then a phobia of frustration, but we've built that in a kid. So the more we focus on kids being happy in their early years, the more we actually set them up for dysregulation and what looks like entitlement or anxiety in adulthood. And the more we focus in the early years on helping kids tolerate the range of feelings, then they actually go into adulthood with skills to manage all those feelings, which actually leaves more space to actually cultivate happiness. Is this something that isn't the fault of some of these parents? It's their, you know, we talked about this before, but they're just passing down. Or are they? Or they could be working in opposition to the way they were parented. And I know you talk about reparenting a lot. So what does that mean exactly in these situations? I think there's so many forces that can lead to this, right? And again, and none of them are that these parents were bad parents or were malintentioned, right? Or maybe they didn't get things when they were little, and now they feel like I'm in a position that I can give my child everything I didn't get. I think that that's exactly right. And I always like with parents to rethink um, giving kids, you know, the things that really matter. Because yes, you know, people think on their own childhood, it's like, I didn't, I didn't get things, right? My guess is if you really look back on your childhood and you remember, I didn't get the toy, I didn't get the vacation. My guess is what felt bad, again, wasn't just the not getting, but was probably a home where it wasn't validated for you, you weren't connected to, right? And then if we fast forward to the idea of I want to give my kids everything, like what I want to give my kids is setting them up to be fully functioning, confident, resilient adults, it's not that I want to give them the thing on the surface, the toy. I want to give them actually the skills to manage not getting the toy. Because I promise you, they're going to figure out if they're confident and resilient how to get themselves, quote, toys. But what you can't just figure out overnight is how to manage tricky situations. Yeah. And so the reparenting, I think, that really matters is really the act of, of giving yourself the things that you really always needed in childhood and never received. And, and there's something really powerful about being an adult is we can now really, in profound ways, be the adult for those essentially, you know, th that inner child in us or those inner child parts. We don't have to wait along for our actual parents to give it to us because we're no longer as dependent on them because we're adults. So it might be, you know, sitting and, and noticing how you feel, which sounds so soft, but it might just be like, I'm going to take 10 seconds and just say to myself, after I got a really difficult email from my boss, I might say, you know, Becky, wait, pause. I'm upset. That is upsetting to read. I'm allowed to feel that way. I'm going to figure out what to do. But let me start by just validating my own feelings. Okay. And then I, then I problem solve. I promise you the parent who does that is going to be able to show up for their kid 
if they want to kind of, quote, be there for their kid way better than if they just try to memorize what to say to their kid. Because when they actually do that kind of act of reparenting, right, they're actually changing the circuit in their own body. And so something different will activate with their own kids. So it's almost like grabbing the oxygen mask for yourself before you give it to your kid. I mean, I know that's used a lot. It's become almost a cliche, but getting sort of in touch with your reactions are going to help you manage your kids? Yeah. So here's an example from my my own life, right? So I was definitely like a very, quote, good girl yeah. growing up, right? Which I've learned is just- You were a pleaser. I was a pleaser. Exactly. Get so mine, I, sister. Exactly. <laughs> and like the way I always think about that visually is- I was, you know, raised in a way, or at least I, you know, I internalized that I had to gaze out before I gaze in. Like, who do you want me to be? How can I make your life easier? Way before I gazed in and thought like, well, what do I want? (laughs) What's in line with, you know, my own values, things like that. So fast forward to having my first kid, who's now 11. I'm starting out like, you know, five, six. He just, the most positive way of saying it is he really speaks up for himself, right? The other way of saying it, which would be triggering me, it was like, why can't he ever take no for an answer? Like, why can't he be more people pleasing? Why can't he just notice that I don't want him to have a sleepover and be like, mom, you know what? You're a great mom. No problem. Sorry for asking. You know, like that would be nice. And he wouldn't. And I'd find myself in these moments, especially when I was frustrated or depleted with other things, saying things that I I really never wanted to say. Like, what's wrong with you? You're so selfish. You're so spoiled. Like I'd say these things in these moments. And I knew I wasn't going to want to give him a sleepover. But I also know, Becky, there's another way of saying that. I could just say, hey, I'm done talking about this. My answer is no, you're allowed to be upset. And the reason I couldn't wasn't because I didn't memorize that script enough, is because I was triggered. So one of the reflections I did was, you know, when I think we see something in our kid that bugs us, we think, how can we make our kid more like us? Versus what am I seeing in my kid that I probably had to shut down in myself? And how can I actually almost feel inspired by my kid? Because I probably need to grow. I always think I probably need to grow that part of myself. It's not like I need to make my kid more like me. I almost need to make myself more like my kid. And I was like, yeah, you know, no wonder it triggers me. Speaking up for something when I hear a no, that's something that I learned not to do as a kid. And so I really did for like these weeks. I did this experiment. I was like, I'm going to speak up for myself more, not to my son. But I bet if I do it in other areas of my life, it'll play out and I'll be less triggered. So I remember being in a store and I was returning something and they were like, sorry, it's past the time you can return it. And I was like, you know, I know what my son would do. I was like, you know, can I talk to a manager? Like, I, I feel like I've been a customer for a long time. And, you know, I, I really feel like this is in line with like what would be appropriate. And I, I actually was successful. And so like all different areas, instead of thinking my kid's such a bad, spoiled kid, I was like, let me reparent the part of me that was such a pleaser. And let me like try to speak up. I remember also I was on the subway. I was like really tired one day. Someone was taking up two seats and I was like, hey, can you move over? I really like to sit. That was definitely against the people pleasing part of me. (laughs) Right. And then sure enough, it wasn't like I've never said those words to my kid, but the trigger moments really changed from that act of reparenting. For me, and I think many in my generation, we were afraid of our kids a little bit. We wanted them to like us. We wanted to be their friends. And I think there was such a switch in the parent-child relationship from our parents to kind of acknowledging feelings, but to the point where we just wanted them to like us. So how do you get out of that spiral? How do you do enough disciplining And I know that you want parents to be sturdy and strong and no nonsense about some issues. 
But also, like, that is a tough balance, isn't it? Because I think parents see it as one thing or another, right? I want to be your friend or I am a parent. Right. Either I'm the I'm the kind of disciplinarian right. or I'm your buddy. Right. right. And again, it's like those two buckets where, like, there's got to be something in between. And 100% I think there is. So, you know, I think a lot about what I call family jobs, right? And I'm sure you see this all the time in different places you've worked. Like, you can never hire someone to do a job well unless you've told them what their job is. And actually, I think having clarity as a parent of like, what is my job? Like, what really, what would I write down in my job description is really important because without that clarity, we can go to an extreme. So I think parents have two main sets of jobs. So one is, and you were kind of getting to this, it's validating and really kind of empathizing with our kids' feelings. That matters. That actually is important because it's how kids learn to regulate those feelings throughout their lives. Kids can never learn to tolerate feelings that we can't tolerate in them. So when we say, you wish you could have that toy, oh, you're really mad that I won't let you have that sleepover. That really matters. But the other part of our job matters so much too. And that's setting and maintaining boundaries. And I'm really bad at that. It's hard because it goes back to if you were a people pleaser, people pleasers don't set boundaries for themselves. They actually look at who they need to be for others and they please others. They keep people happy with them. And sure enough, the best way to keep someone, at least in the moment, happy with you is to have no boundaries. You just kind of float around. And by the way, it's easier and easier to tolerate for a parent because saying no is harder than saying yes. I think it's easier short term. Well, that's what I mean. Right. But But it also sets parents up for, I think, all this rage that parents talk about. Because, yeah, it's easier short term because you just become a version of yourself your child in the moment wants you to be. But if you think about that, if you think about having no boundaries, if you think about an egg with no boundaries, guess what? There's no egg anymore. It's spilled out all over the place, right? So the shell in an egg is like super important or else the egg ceases to be an egg. It just (laughs) doesn't even have an identity. So I think I think one of the thing about boundaries that I like teaching parents is parents are like, well, what about consequences and discipline? I think true boundaries in some ways, like they really replace consequences because what a boundary really is, is it's a decision we make or it's something we do. But what's really important is boundaries tell our kids what we will do and they require a kid to do nothing. And that's really important because whenever we set a boundary, we need to say to ourselves, okay, am I telling my kid what I'm gonna do? And does this require my kid to do nothing? Telling a kid stop jumping on the couch is not a boundary. We think it's a boundary. It's not because it would require my kid to get off the couch to be successful. Saying to my kid, hey, it looks like you wanna jump. Can't jump on the couch, please get down. And then if they don't saying, hey, I'm gonna come over to you. It looks like it's really hard to listen. I'm gonna take you off the couch and put you on the ground and you could go jump on the floor. Now, that's a boundary. My kid will probably cry, but if I remember, wait, my job is not just to see their feelings, which would be, hey, you want to jump. But also my job is to set a boundary. Then at the end of the day, even if I'm tired, I could say to myself, okay, I did my job well. I both set boundaries when I needed to, and I empathized and validated with my kids' feelings instead of only doing one part of that job, which even if it's easier in the short term, what leads to in the long term right, is kids really don't learn how to manage their disappointment and frustration because they never had to tolerate it because we kind of like would take it away from them. When we come back, screen time, bribing, and more parenting conundrums with Dr. Becky.
This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I think we can't have this conversation about parenting without talking about technology. I am so happy I grew up without technology. I am so happy that it was just coming to the forefront when my children were little. And I see a huge difference between my older daughter, who's four and a half years older than my younger daughter, in terms of the role technology has played in their lives. I feel so bad for parents trying to figure this out because they're also probably having to deal with their own addictive behavior. So we could do three hours on this, but how do you help parents figure this out? Because I do think it's having such a, a terrible impact on kids, their sense of self, developing their, not only it's, it's sort of warping their self-esteem, it's not giving them inner strength, it's giving them outer validation. I mean, what a mess. What a mess. It's so true. So in no ways do I have a complete solution for this. It's just like, I always say like every parent feels awful about their screen time and technology usage in the house. So if you feel awful about it, I do too. It's just, it's it's unwinnable. So I think there's a couple things I think about. Number one, I, let's talk about when your kids are young, right? So, you know, the thing with screen time when our kids are young that I think is important to realize is it's just very, very low effort very, very high reward moments. It's just like, you know, my kid can go like bing, bing, bing on like an iPad and have so much fun or just watch something passively. And what I think we need to think about when our kids are young is how important it is to have screen time limits and everyone's family that will look different. But what the limit allows for is is for your kid to actually have more high effort, high reward moments. You know, like doing puzzles and reading and learning to interact with peers, it's hard compared to just watching a show or, you know, having a video game. And so during these years when our kids are developing, I always encourage I always encourage parents not to only think like how much TV is too much, right? But it's more, well, do I, can I preserve time where my kid is actually learning the skills that they're going to need to learn in terms of managing frustration and things like that? So that's how I think about when they're younger. As our kids get older, I, I think one of the most important things is just to develop an alliance with our kids as early as possible. We can't wait till our kids are 10 or 13 to start talking about screen time 
And we have to think about this in a collaborative way with that with them because they're going to get to an age where probably they do have a phone. And if that's the first time that we say, hey, let's talk about your usage, it seems too much. Like we don't have an alliance to lean on. So even when your kids are, I don't know, making this up, six, seven, eight, I encourage parents to sit down with everyone's devices away and to say, let's talk about, let's talk about screen time. Let's talk about what you like about it. Let me hear you out. What's your favorite part? And let's talk about why it can be like a little dangerous for all of us, right? Something I always talk about with my kids is, do you notice that no matter how much there is, it feels like never enough? And I always say, it feels like it's a cup with a hole in the bottom. No matter how much screen time we have, right? We think if we put in more, it's going to fill us up. But it just always like, <laughs> it always, always comes out. Like those are the conversations that again, we're not fixing something, but now we have a common language, right? Because if we go into those teenage years with our kids wanting to be on all the apps, on TikTok, on Snapchat, on, you know, and and we haven't to that point talked about this stuff, then it, it, we definitely still can, but it, but it's really, really hard. And then I think the other thing that I think at any age around technology is going back to boundaries. We have to be willing to tolerate our kids not being happy with us, right? And like that comes up over and over with screen time. You know, it's funny because when I was on the Today Show, we had a parenting expert named Dr. Sylvia Rim. She wrote me a letter recently, which just reminds me I need to write her back. But she talked about parenting as an inverted triangle, that it's always easier to give kids more power and authority as they get older but it's very hard to reduce it once you have. And I think the same goes with phones and screen mm -hmm. time or really any kind of positive reinforcement, right? Yeah. Or it's not really positive reinforcement, um, any kind of, I guess, freedom, freedom. in a way. Uh, yeah, I guess I would think, t I think two things about that. I think, yes, 100%, of course, it's harder as they get older, especially as they get into those ages where their job is to start to feel more independent and separate from us. So reigning in control when kids are developmentally supposed to be taking more control is, is tricky. But but I think, I think there's another side that I say to parents often because I'll hear parents say like, well, you know, I gave my kids this many hours of iPad use or my kid has free reign over their phone. Like, what am I supposed to do? Now they're 16 or now they're... We are always able to say to our kids some version of, hey, I want to tell you about a decision I've made that I know you're not going to like. And still I'm communicating it to you because it is super important in terms of just keeping everyone in this family safe. And I say this to my kids all the time, like my number one job is to keep you safe. And I will always make decisions, even if they're ones that you don't like, because I love you that much to tolerate your anger at me to keep you safe and put you on a path that I think is important. Like, and I think we don't say that enough as parents. So maybe someone's listening to this and they're like, yeah, like I do feel like my six-year-old just watches too much TV. What can I do? You can say, you know, starting tomorrow, you have this much TV instead. I know that's a change and I know that's probably going to be hard and I'm already getting ready for the, what? It's already over. You're the worst. I'm ready for it. My number one job is to keep you safe. And right now, a version of safety is having less screen time. So we're going to make that change even if you're upset. Like, But hard any, to do that when your kid is 16. It's harder. It is definitely harder, and I don't recommend, of course, at 16, you have these unilateral moments. But it might be saying to your 16-year-old, hey, we need to have a family meeting because phone use has gotten out of control, and maybe you think my phone use has too. It's like we're all at the table together, all on our phones. I'm willing to hear that, but what I know is we need some changes. I know those changes are going to be hard on everyone. I also know we're a family who can do hard things when they're in everyone's best interest. So let's come to that meeting with ideas. 
Let's go into that meeting knowing we're each going to have to compromise a little bit. And let's go into that meeting knowing we all love each other and we're going to figure this out. I feel like that's the kind of leader, like, organ, like organizations make change sometimes, right? Like I, it's kind of random I'm bringing this up, but I just read that amazing letter from the CEO of Stripe announcing layoffs and what they're doing. And I mean, just, it was amazing lesson in sturdiness. Like here's some not great news. Here's news that people are going to not like to hear, but I'm going to be direct. I'm going to tell you what's happening. And I'm also going to tell you, I have confidence we're going to get to the other side. And it was, it's so holding to hear communication like that. And I think you're so right about looking at your own behavior because my daughter came over last night. I hadn't seen her for a while. And she said, mom, you have a real problem with your phone. I came in and you barely looked up. And I said, I just wanted to finish this Instagram post that I'd been working on. And I'm like, she said, really, you, you have a problem. I think about this a lot, Katie, like, and it makes me, it always actually, I try not to make it make me feel guilty. I use it to be motivated to make a slight change with my own kids. When I was a kid, when I was my kid's age, right? My kids are five, eight, 11. And I was with my parents. I always think like our parents, maybe this was you when you were raising your kids, they had to work hard to be distracted from me. They would have had to like open the New York Times and like read the paper to like block me out. And now, like if I think about the percentage of time with my kids too, that kids look at their parents and there's literally a phone in between them blocking that connection. I think the percentage is like disturbingly high. And then when we think about kids' behavior, kids need connection to feel safe more than anything else. They want to feel close to us. A very high percentage of time, there's literally the screen. They see the back of our phones, right, before they see our face. Then they get more dysregulated, right? And so when I think about that myself, what what I do, I I literally call it something just to make it fun and not guilt-inducing for me. I'm like, my kids need PNP time. It's just play no phone. Play no phone. And I say that to my kids. Hey, you've probably noticed I'm on my phone a lot. I'm putting it behind two doors because I need two doors. To, like I, one doesn't work for me. I've Sounds noticed. like you have a problem too, I have a problem Becky. too, of course. <laughs> yeah. And I said, and I'm all yours. We can do anything you want to do and play doh, a game, whatever it is. And I'm just fully present. And for any parent listening, you don't have to say, okay, I'm not going to be on my phone for a week. You can even say, I'm going to give my kids five moments of this like PNP time when I wouldn't usually in a day. And it really does start to make a big shift. I remember when Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins were married, and this was predated iPhones, they would not answer their phone, landlines, this is how long ago it was, Mm -hmm. between five and eight. And I thought, that's so great. Like, they would just push out any kind of external distraction so they could really focus on on their kids. And I feel like that's something that's really important to do now more than ever because it is so accessible and ubiquitous. I think that's right. And I think for all of us, right, but there might be a work emergency or something. We can say like, you know, well, we can have a family emergency. I mean, there, there's, there is like this, this, I don't know about emergency. I'm not like such a, I don't like to like stoke fear, but like our, our kids need our time. We don't want it to get to a point where there's an emergency with them, right? And we have to protect, going back to boundaries. Like we need boundaries around some time with our kid for sure. More with Dr. Becky right after this. This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So, what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. 
Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Let me go through a couple of quick questions we got. My type A friends have questions about what you call DFKs. Yes. Deeply feeling kids. What do you do if you have a deeply feeling child, but you are also a deeply feeling adult? That's a bad combo, I'm assuming. I don't think it's a bad combo. I think that actually this is like the highest percentage of the members in our membership are are just this. They like, yeah, they're like, I watched the deeply feeling kids workshop and I didn't even realize how much like it was, it was healing for me, you know, because I realized you know, the type of kid I was. So deeply feeling kids are kids who really do feel things more intensely than other kids. I always think they have like bigger pores. That's how I visualize it. So more comes in. And in some ways they're also scared of more of them spilling out. And so if you have a deeply feeling kid and you are a deeply feeling adult, and I like to be a straight shooter, I'd say like actually that reparenting work, like when I, in in our good inside system, the reparenting workshop plus the deeply feeling kids workshop are, are completely game changing for parents because it goes back to what you're saying. Okay, first I have to kind of do some of that rewiring and repairing and, um, you know, kind of work inside myself. That helps me show up differently. And then deeply feeling kids really do need different strategies than other kids because they reject kind of most of the things that help other kids. And there's nothing, there's there's very little I'm as proud of as our Deeply Feeling Kids Workshop. It lays it all out step by step for people. Okay, so people should watch that if Definitely. they need to know more about it. Um, have you gotten much backlash to this sort of good inside philosophy, which is basically a rejection of original sin, right? That people are inherently good. I mean, it's hard to think that, especially in the world we're living in right now, Becky. So what have people said about that philosophy? And I guess you got into it a little bit with Glennon Doyle. A little. And I, I, every once in a while, not too often, get a DM that says something like, this is at odds with like my deeply held religious beliefs, you know? Um, you know, and, and I'm not, uh, I don't have great knowledge of religion. That's definitely not where I, you know, flex. So um, but, but other people have said, you know, a big part of our approach is this idea of holding multiple truths at once, this idea of two things are true, which dialectic relates dialectic thinking, dialectic thinking. And it relates to holding boundaries with kids, even, you know, like, wait, two things are true. Like I'm in charge of this decision. You're in charge of your feelings. Like we're both doing a good job. But I think the idea that babies are born with inherent goodness and that also we all need a lot of help along the way. Right. We all, you know, to me, that's how we can hold those both at once. Or um, to bring out the good in us, exactly. even if it's not all good. That's exactly right? right. To bring it out. That's exactly right. One person wants to know what's what are the best ways to incentivize and reward good behavior and hard work and discourage slash punish bad behavior or bad attitudes. And I think she's asking this because she relies 
quite heavily on bribery. Yes. And she says, I don't think that's great. Yeah, I mean, and I think I do see this a lot, like the sticker charts, the rewards, the prizes, that you get this for doing your homework, you know, what it leads to. Understandably, is kids who, as they get older, say, like, I'm not doing this. Well, what's my prize? What's my what are you going to give me for cleaning up my room? What are you going to give me for doing homework? I don't think any of us want to be in that situation when our kids are older. And so bribery, these kind of, quote, incentives, which really just means external incentives, I, I think I think we shoot ourselves in the foot the more we use them. And so it goes back to changing things. Like we can always say to our kids, like, hey, I've been doing this for a while. And you know what? I'm stopping. I'm stopping. And here's why. I know you have it in you. And I know you want to be a good student. Like, even if homework's hard, like, you're you're a good kid. You like learning things. I know you have responsibility in you. And you can be a responsible member of our family. And just like you see me cleaning up my room, like, I know you have it in you to do that. So I think first, like, I often think about this visual. Like, I need to see the good in my kid before they can access it themselves. And actually, every time we, like, bribe a kid, we kind of say, like, I think you're someone who needs to be coerced into doing a good behavior. It doesn't feel good actually. But I do think that when kids are really little, I have a friend whose child had to wear a mask Mm -hmm. for an interview. Yep. And they wouldn't let the child apply or be a part of a program without that. And my friend bought her son a toy in order to get him to wear a mask. I mean, at some stage, developmentally, Mm -hmm. kids don't really understand reason. And You can't really reason with them. But I actually think kids never listen because of reason. I don't think a lot of times we do either. I think, I mean, that's a bigger topic, talking about like why kids cooperate and listen. And certainly I'm not rigid. There are moments, of course, you're like, I need this to happen with my kid. It's this one-off thing. I too would give myself plenty of permission to be like, hey, do this and I'll get you ice cream. Just please do it. Of course, we have those moments. But I think we have to ask ourselves as parents, is this something one-off I give myself permission to do here or there? Or is this in general, the strategy that I'm using over and over and over to get cooperation from my kids or to have my kids do things that they clearly don't even have intrinsic motivation to do. Like my kid does not do their homework unless I offer them candy at the end. Like, well, that's different to me than, okay, I need them to put their seatbelt on on the airplane and avoid a big tantrum. And I'm just like, here's all the snacks in the world, do it. So I think, I think that's like a different category. I think though, we do need a different system And it's a system. It's not a moment for understanding why do kids cooperate? Why do kids do things they don't want to do? Why do kids do homework? What's getting in a kid's way of doing homework? Probably not that they're not getting a prize. I wonder if they have frustration tolerance skills. Do they have the skills to organize and plan things? Do they feel stupid compared to the other kids in their class? Are they perfectionistic and they're worried about getting things wrong? So without a bribe, how do you get kids to cooperate? Are you saying you find the root causes of their lack of cooperation? A hundred percent. I mean, I think why do any of us cooperate, right? Like, why would I go get my husband a glass of water when we're both sitting on the couch if he asked me versus saying, like, get yourself water, right? Um, Well, I think it has to do with how, how seen we feel by someone, how connected we feel, the state of our relationship in that moment, and in a lot of situations, the skills we have, right? So if my kid isn't cleaning up their room, Let's say that. That's a situation. And I'm like, okay, I'll give you dessert or whatever. I'll give you this bribe if you clean up your room. I'm not actually getting to like, well, why? It's not just cleaning up the room. Why aren't they doing something that I want them to do, right? So maybe part of it is organization. Like they need help. They need a visual on their their wall, right? Okay, well, after you get home, you put your book bag away. You clean up your room. We have dinner. I don't know. There could actually be an organization skill that's missing. Maybe my kid feels so controlled by me 
and we get in fights so often that not cleaning their room is their one way of saying like, fuck you, you know, basically I'm my own person and this is one area of my life I can control. So I'm just gonna not clean it up to send you the message. Then I would say we would need a very different intervention, right? That's like, okay, well, what needs repairing in your relationship? And I think these things we hear it as parents, and I know I roll my eyes too. I'm like, oh, that seems like so much time. I was gonna say, okay. it sounds exhausting. But, but you know what's really exhausting? is when we bribe and punish and reward our kids' way through their first 13 years of our life, their life. And then we have a 13-year-old who we have no relationship with. And those kids do not talk to us about social media. Those kids do not respect a curfew. Those kids do not tell us when they're in dangerous situations with other kids because for 13 years of our life, we've been bribing them and coercing them instead of developing a relationship with them. And when you develop a relationship with them, which does not mean giving them everything they want, there's a lot of, again, firm boundaries while recognizing the validity of their reactions. Then we get to a situation where we can say to our kids, hey, I noticed you're not cleaning up your room. And here's the thing, like there must be something getting in the way. And you know in our house, we take these things seriously. You have some stuff in your room you have to take care of. I do. So let's just get to the bottom of this together. What might make you clean it up? What might make it easier? Like, and and then like literally this does happen. It's not a fantasy where kids are like, Oh, like I just always forget. Okay, would a schedule help? Oh, it's no fun. I know this is not, it's, you know, it's not that fun. Would it be a little more fun if we like, I don't know, put on a song in our house and like kind of we had music on and you cleaned your room at the same time I cleaned my room? You know, like let's think about this together. I mean, that's just in general the idea of collaborative problem solving, which mm-hmm. number one is more effective. Number two preserves your relationship with your kid. And number three actually sets them up to develop the skills they need so when they're 20 and up and out of your house, they, they can function as adults. This is the last question. I I mean, I could talk about this all day. It's really interesting. Um, And it's making me think about all the things I did wrong. No, 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 no wrong. (laughs) Rethinking is not about being wrong. It's about considering new ideas that that make sense to you now. That's all, if they do. Um, One person who went through a contentious divorce, and apparently, I guess, a lot of people with young kids got divorced uh, post-pandemic. She asks, selfishly, I'd like to know how you manage kids who have to live in two totally different houses because of shared custody. How do you help them reset when they get to your house if where they're coming from is so different? I bet a lot of people are talking about that, sadly. Yes. So uh, I'd want to say that, number one, I wish I could do full justice to this. Obviously, this is like a complex situation that there's not one quick, easy answer to. And actually time on divorce is something I care a lot about because, of course, it happens to a lot of kids. So a couple of just quick ideas about it. Number one, it's totally normal for kids to struggle in those transitional moments. They are living, leaving one world with one set of rules and something they've adjusted to in that relationship. And they have to make a complete switch, right? It's like a different house. It's different rules. It's different parents. It's so just understanding, okay, my kid's not my kid's not like a difficult kid. This is just a lot. And that doesn't mean you're messing up your kids. I think we we, we do that. We're like, oh, so I'm messing up my kids forever, so they're going to be messed up. Well, this. it might be helpful, though, if there's similar rules in each house, right? I it, mean. A hundred percent. And I think the reality, especially if it's a contentious divorce, is it's hard to just, communicate. Right. Right. So, um, so just understanding that. Because then what happens is when you, you get your kids in your house, right, instead of saying like, okay, dinner time, you'll be like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna build in like 15 minutes of like having a hard time, time. (laughs) I'm just gonna like build it in so I don't add my own frustration. So knowing that really helps. Number two, and I think this is really important, communicating with our kids directly about this change without needing to fix it, just naming it. 
is key. And I think a lot of times as parents, we don't communicate until we have an answer with our kids. They don't often need answers. They just need someone to name what's happening. Just why I always say, name what's true. So saying to our kids, hey, it's probably tricky to go from dad's house to my house, right? It's probably hard to go from one house and they do things one way and they have to get in the car. I know it wasn't too long ago before we all lived in the same house and now you have two and that that's hard and I get that. That, what that does to a kid's body is it just makes a kid feel like, ah, oh, yes, that is what's happening for me. Somebody understands me. I'm not alone in this experience. This can be talked about. Hugely, hugely helpful. I think that one of the things I tend to do is I'm a fixer. And I think we've touched on this a lot in this conversation. But sometimes you just, in order to make kids feel seen and heard, that doesn't mean your default is fixing. And I'm always trying to solve problems. And sometimes people just want to be heard and seen and and share their feelings without, and have their feelings validated. That is a really bad habit of mine. I'm like, okay, well, what are we going to do to solve this problem? And then sometimes it exacerbates the feelings of anger and frustration because I've automatically gone to how are we going to make this better instead of just sitting in the discomfort of having someone upset. And I think that's like, I think I think all of us do that. And to me, again, in these hard moments, visuals really, really help. And you said a word that evokes a visual for me. So when people are really upset and I try to do this with my kids, I'm less good at doing it with my husband, working on it, right? Like I picture him or you could picture your daughter like sitting on a bench, literally sitting on a bench. And it's the bench of whatever upsetting thing happens. I'm a, the, the bench of I wasn't invited to this or the bench of this thing at my workplace didn't go the way I wanted. Or I don't feel successful. I don't feel successful. That's a great example. I'm sitting on the bench of not feeling successful. And if everyone thinks about their urges, we often have the urge to do one of two things. We either want to yank them off that bench because we see a like happier bench. So we say things like, but look at this. And what about this? And think about it this way. Or why don't you right. do this? Exactly. Right. So what, what that image is, is like we find them on the bench of not feeling successful and we like try to yank them off or we try to convince them. I always think like their bench isn't their bench. We're like, but what are you talking about? You have a great job. Right. And like, so either way, Katie, going back to that theme of aloneness being the hardest thing, the you next sit time on you're, the bench next to you them, sit on the bench. That's exactly right. And I think as a parent or as a partner, you just know, you don't need someone to tell you. You just know internally, like the way you're responding. You know whether you're sitting with them or you're taking them off. Because sitting is, in some ways it's so simple, even though it's so hard. You say like, oh, I'm, I'm glad you're talking to me about this. Or tell me more. Or that, I mean, or that sounds really hard, like to feel that way, right? Or, oh, t- like, when has that come up for you recently? I want to learn more about it. Like, it's just, yeah, you're literally sitting on that bench. And that's that's what people want. And I actually think that's what resilience building is because then your child, the next time they feel that, they have literally encoded your support around them. They're less alone. And I always think you can't take away the hard, but we can always take away the alone. And every time we fix it, ironically, the next time a kid feels that way, all they remember is being alone on the bench. They don't remember our solution because they just wanted someone present there. So yes, all of us can be, me too, can be a little bit better at bench sitting. (laughs) I wonder why I'm so bad at it. I wonder if I have a hard time dealing with my own sadness and my own bad feelings about myself and, you know. Yank yourself off? Yeah. 
Well, which can go back to that intergenerational patterns. Like, well, okay, if that's hard for me to sit in feelings. And again, problem solving can be super, I'm like that too, I'm quick to action. And that can work for us, but sometimes, sometimes not. And so, yes, if people had a hard time sitting on our benches with us, we have a hard time sitting on our own. We see it in our kid. We have a hard time sitting with them until we make some small shifts and then end up making really powerful intergenerational change as a result. Well, I can see why you're called the parent whisperer, whatever people call you. I, I don't know who actually calls me that, but thank you. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> I'm going to make people call me that. Somebody does, but... <laughs> Uh, Dr. Becky Kennedy, the book is called Good Inside, A Guide to Becoming the Parent You Want to Be. And also, I would add, the person you want to be. Because these are skills that you can use every day with all the important people in your life. I completely agree. Thank you. It's been such a treat to talk to you. I hope it's not the last time. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. Associate producers, Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.